All right, so I'm going to offer a little talk, a recap from last week, and then we'll have a, a little announcement, and then a break, and then we'll come back for some small group discussions. Forgot to uh, introduce myself. I'm Tim Guile, one of the guiding teachers here at Seattle Insight. And anyone who's new tonight, if you could raise your hand. Great, welcome. And online, anyone new? Great. So these Monday nights, we tend to go into some deeper aspects of the Dharma. And this month, we're exploring what's called, it's part of the three characteristics. And we're also looking particularly at one called non-self or anatta. So you're kind of, if you're joining us, we're diving into a deep pool tonight. So anatta or non-self is one of the core aspects of what the Buddha taught. It's one of the key things that he looked at in terms of what creates this quality of suffering, of unnecessary struggle in our lives, is this identification with an isolated sense of me, of self. Of course, there's this relative truth of that, that we, you know, I know there's me, there's you. But there's a way that when we take that as an absolute truth, it ties us into a level of suffering that is is optional. We can actually have the freedom from that. When that we release that illusion of separation, in return there's this quality of interconnection, quality of, of deep ease and peace in the moment in our lives. Now this this concept of non-self is is very subtle. It's one of the harder things to start to understand because we tend to try to understand it from the sense of self. So it's like the logic is kind of a closed loop. So it doesn't quite make sense. So it often asks us to shift out of that normal way of seeing and perceiving and understanding ourselves, understanding ourselves in a different way. One way we can start to hold it is that this process of, of selfing or creating that sense of me actually starts to thin, become less established, less predominant as we practice. This can actually happen just naturally by following the meditative instructions, especially if we follow in a way that's uh, very sincere, in a way that actually take it to as, as deep a level as possible and are willing to as we learn to meet our breath and our sensations and experience in a certain way, we also start to meet ourselves in that way. So talking a couple pieces around that, and this is just goes back to our basic instructions. When we practice meditation, we're learning how to just meet the moment how it is without adding anything to it, to have a quality of kind of cleaning up our perception. By doing that, we're actually stepping out of our normal engagement with with the moment's experience. That's very much tied to that sense of me. There's two ways that this tends to happen as we follow the instructions. The first is relaxing our friction with the moment, the way that we're always trying to make the moment a little better, a little different, or trying to maintain the moment if it's going pretty well. As you, as you quiet down in meditation, you start to notice that there's just this, this little bit of something going on with the moment. It's rare to actually be completely, absolutely at peace with how the moment actually is, when there's no sense of me having to do anything with the moment. 
there's often just a subtleness of, of even just knowing, okay, I'm the meditator. I know I'm doing this. I'm experiencing this, this breath, this sensation. So as we practice in simple ways, okay, I can hear a sound without adding anything to it. I can have a sensation, an emotion arise without adding anything to it. We start to step away from that engagement of, of me who's, who's doing something with. We're starting to thin that sense of self. Right? So this can go very deeply as we take that on more and more complete levels. We start to see where is that little bit of friction in this moment. As we just see that and start to relax with it. See if I can relax that, that trying to do something with it. The, the homework and the discussion points focused on a couple kind of more obvious ways that we're do something with the moment, judging it, comparing, trying to fix the moment. All those things really engage that sense of self. Doing opposite of that, that allows us that sense of self to quiet down, become thinner. Right? This starts to incline us toward finally seeing through that sense of self. Now, another way that meditation works with this, even if we're not inclined toward it, looking at anatta, is around this, this sense of identification or this way that we label things is what I mean by that. So I look out in the room, I see a chair, I see different people I know, people I don't know. There's different you know, impress- impressions, there's different liking, disliking, all that stuff starts to come up. Okay, so I'm relating to the world basically through my preconceptions, through my conditioning, through my history. This, of course, is useful when we do our work or navigate you know, to our homes. We, you know, we learn, learn how to go different ways, right? That's helpful. It's not so helpful because we also because we don't take it as just a tool that we use. We take it as being absolute. We take it as being the reality. We mistake our preconceptions or ideas or labels for the thing, for the actual thing. Right? So this is, is kind of an obvious statement. But as meditators, you start to see the depth of that when you start to see the, the freshness of the moment, the potential of that. Those of you who have been on meditation retreats, you know that after a few days, your senses start to really open up. You often maybe not realize that, but you just realize that the the surroundings become more vivid. There's a way that a a tree just kind of captures your attention. You're both becoming more collected, but you're also starting to, to loosen that constant identification, that constant labeling around some other object. You start to let that go. You're meeting life directly how it is. That process itself starts to loosen that sense of me, that sense of I. Another way this sense of self can really start to thin is more directly looking at that, looking at where that assumption of me is. I mean, right now as you're sitting listening, just kind of step back a little bit and check out, okay, what's this assumption of me who's the listener? Me who's sitting right here. Where is that located? It's like if we don't look very closely at it, it feels, it seems very intact. Like, of course, here I am sitting. That's an obvious question. doesn't make any sense. But I actually tried to see where is that located. 
And even more so, is it solid? Or is it changing? Is there something solid, unchanging that I can find that is really me? That assumption of I. As we start to do this, this is a more subtle way of working. It's a subtle way of, of being present. But we start to find that that sense of me is not so obvious. In fact, it may be very hard to find where that exactly is located. Because in reality, that sense of you, of me, is kind of popping up and then falling away, kind of constantly coming and going based on whatever might trigger it. You know, I might be late to the sit and there's a sense of me arises. And then the, the, the system doesn't work and there's a sense of me that arises. And then that falls away. And there's a new sense of me that arises. Right? We connect those dots and say, okay, that's me, that's a continuousness of me. But the Buddha said that's actually not the right way to look at it. Actually, what we fall back into is more the essence of who and what we are. So that sense of, of inquiry or investigation, you can just start to notice, okay, who's watching this experience? Who's, who's sensing it? Where is that located? Right? Maybe you get a sense of the watcher, this, this the person or thing that's that's sensing this experience, and then you relax a little bit more and notice what's observing that, what's sensing that, and what's sensing that. And you can just so you back up more and more, and it becomes very quiet, very subtle, and yet there's still that little sense of distance, of separation. And so this is about as far as we can go with the thinning of the self. It's very thin, but there's still that basic assumption of separation, of me and the outside, me and the other. One teacher talked about it, is we can get to, like we get to the door and we knock on it and we just have to trust and surrender that door will open when it will. Because we can't force ourselves through this, this insight. We can just incline ourselves to be more and more open to it. Now, when the self does fall away, there's, there's a very substantial different perception that arises. You know, it's, and you can see that even when you're working in a very subtle way, that sense of self still was there. When that actually falls away, there's this, it's a bit of a, um, it can be a shock, it can be a sense of wonder, it can be a sense of, disorientation. It's like there's something that has always been there that's no longer there, is one way to describe it. And you may look to say, okay, where is that sense of me? And you just, it doesn't make even sense to ask that question. It doesn't make sense to, to look for that. There's no sense of claiming this is me who's having this experience. The way that uh, one of the Zen teachers, the patron saint, state, a saint of Zen, Dorjan, said it this way, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly right so here he's he's putting out this is the perception of the awakened mind 
the awakened mind and realizing non-self are very much connected. They're very related. There's different ways and depths of awakening. But this non-self, seeing through that, seeing it as a direct experience is, is one of the important ways that awakening shows up. So looking at that, that little quote from Dojin, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. That's that quality of inquiry. Where's that sense of me that's here? But he knows, he says as soon as you start to study it, you start to forget it. It starts to fall away because you can't find it. You can't see it in the way that is. It seems like it's always there. We actually look for it. It's not there. When you do this, there's this way of being actualized by myriad things. Okay, actualized by myriad things. This is a hallmark that the sense of separation between me and all these things falls away. It's like everything seems to kind of come in close. They start to become, um, there's not that lack of separation. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. Drop away. Right? So it's not literally like everything vanishes but just that sense of, of body separation, that sense of your body, my body, sense of self and other, that falls away. And this is the part I love about this, that no trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So this paradox of from this different perception, it's like there's, there's nothing remains. This idea of enlightenment has fallen away, but this no trace continues endlessly. So we start to talk about in this way, this self falling away, we quickly get to the point where words can't really describe it. They can kind of point toward it. They can kind of give us a shape for it. But the words are really embedded in that sense of me, the sense of self trying to understand something outside of itself. And ultimately, it can't really do that. It can't really see it accurately. And that's one of the, the downsides is sometimes we can, can become really obsessed with the sense of self because sometimes the, the sense of self really loves to the project of trying to get rid of itself. It's like, okay, I can really try to, to figure it out. But it's really kind of giving itself job security. It's like, okay, here I am trying to look and figure this out. And it just keeps everything a little churned up. And it's really this, this path of, of surrender, of letting go, of separation, of falling away. So many of the, the Zen stories or even the Theravatan stories of, of awakening often have that, that something you're holding on to, you've relied on like a staff, and suddenly that staff breaks, falls away. Or a bucket you've been trying to hold together falls away. And that's that, that symbolism of that, that holding on, that friction, that trying to control, and that final, final surrender that comes outside of will. Outside of knowledge. So this self falling away often do, does have a, especially before, right before we're getting close to it, there's often a sense of, of a little bit of fear, disorientation, because we've spent so much of our lives being oriented to this is who I am, this is what I am. Right? And we start, that falls away. We don't quite know where we're going to be. How are we going to be here with the ego not running the show without that sense of self running the show? 
this comes to this last piece I want to just touch upon is this integration of non-self falls away and how we still live our lives. How do we still function? Because from one hand, it doesn't make sense. Like, how can we live our lives if we don't have this sense of self running the show? Right? I kind of everything's plugged away or plugged into that. So it's this kind of everything goes into me, and then I do something. Cause, you know, reaction and response, stimulus and response. So what happens is that 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 sense of you still remains, but it's more of a tool that you can bring up, that you can call up when you need to. Christina Feldman talked about as this navigational self that knows how to navigate the world, how to do the different roles you take up, the different jobs you do, the different relationships. It can be very skillful. But the difference is you don't take that as being the only thing. That's not the absolute, that there's something actually that you realize what you truly are is something beyond that that self, that, that narrow sense of self. It is a narrowing that happens when we get into that sense of self. You can think of it as the different roles that you have. You know, I look out you know, in the room, I look out in the, the Zoom room, I see people of different ages, different life's experiences, different jobs that you've done, different relationships that you have. And some of those jobs and roles as you take on, they can be very, you know, um, all-consuming while you're in them. But then when you're no longer doing that role, it's really helpful to be able to set that aside, to let that go, you know, to not keep holding on to it. Those of us who are parents, we, we get to learn this, that this whole journey from an infant and how the infant is dependent upon us to care for them. And then I have a 19-year-old daughter now, and I can't relate to her in that same way. You know, I have to allow her to have her own life, her own expression. And if I held on to that narrowness, there would be suffering for myself and for her. But learning, learning to let that go to allow something else come up, to actually see what's, what's the right way of meeting this child, meeting this new person, that's, that's, that's the, the integration of our practice. And we learn that often really early on in our meditation practice. We learn that the tighter I hold something, the more suffering I have. The less tight I hold it, the more spontaneous, the more appropriate I can be with how life is presenting itself. Non-self awakening is really just a deeper way of, of experiencing that. It's a very profound way of experiencing it. And you open to what's really what's out beyond any any form, any identity, any role that you might have. So there's a few words about a very kind of subtle concept. And it's, it is fundamental to the Buddhist teachings. And you know, I encourage us to develop a relationship to that, that sense of self and what's outside of that sense of self. And being around other people, being able to just talk about it and explore it with each other, you don't get to do that in other places in your life. Because other people are like, what do you mean there's no self? That doesn't make any sense. But you talk to other meditators, they can they can meet you with that, meet you with that exploration, which we'll be doing just in a few minutes. But let's just pause for a second, let those words settle. All right, so 
you know, to offer some small group discussions. So we have groups of three to four people. And let me frame it first, and then you can make your way into your groups. And online, we'll put you into some breakout rooms. So this is based on the homework. So again, exploring this, this concept of non-self. So wherever you are with it, if you've never heard of it, or if it's been something you've been working with for years, you know, just speak from your own experience. Notice how patterns of comparison, judgment, and thinking serve to reinforce this sense of self, right? Just subjectively, that sense of meanness, that sense of who I am or what I am, becomes more defined when I'm judging something, when I'm comparing something. Even when I'm thinking about something, I'm kind of more intact, right? So just start, you know, notice how that sense of intactness is there. And how have you noticed through your own practice, your own direct meditation practice, that sense of self starts to become thinner, becomes less engaged. Sometimes you might not even realize this is happening, but you might notice like at the end of a meditation, for example, you're just a little more chill, a little more relaxed, a little more open to how life is. Versus when you're caught in that judgment and that comparison and that friction with life, you really know who and what you are. It's just hard to notice that that movement and how what you've explored around that. And how one way of relating to that sense of you kind of reinforces it and how it starts to loosen it. So what I'm inviting you to do is just discuss with your group members around how that is for you. What have you noticed around that sense of you? Have you noticed that becoming a little less established? You might also notice it from the perspective that sense of you becomes less... Um, restricted. Like, for example, that you're always, you've always been worried about talking in front of people. And you just find yourself doing that more spontaneously. It's like, okay, I'm not as afraid or not so limited. That's also part of what happens. We become more fluid in our, in our way we express ourselves. We show up in the world. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah? So I, I suggest we do groups of, like, say, let's do four to five people. And go ahead and, and online in person, you can go ahead and find some people. And online, um, Bob, you can put up some groups. Okay, just in a moment, you'll be put in a breakout room. All right, so welcome back. We have a chance now to ask any questions or do any sharing, both here in the room and also online. So if you're online, you can just raise your your virtual hand, and I'll see it, give you a call on you. And those in the room, you can raise your physical hand. I may not see your virtual hand online, in person. All right, Bob, go ahead. Um, One of the things we talked about, Tim, we didn't... Can you hear me? We can hear you. Okay. One of the things we spoke about, we didn't get to explore it very far, was uh, beyond sort of these comparison and judgment and thinking, sort of um, the embodied sense of self and how when you're trying to hold on to yourself, sometimes you you stiffen up, your shoulders um, clench. And uh, um, when so could you talk a bit about that? embodied sense of self maybe sure 
So the sense of, of how the, the, the body reflects the sense of self, is that another way of, of saying it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That That's why we often, like, let's say we want to do the instructions completely opposite. We said, okay, sit down, make yourself as tense as possible, and think about something really worrisome and, and judge whatever arises, trying to make it different than it is. You know, all that's going to have a certain echoes in the body. But, you know, our instructions are, can you relax the body, let go of areas of tension? The reason to do that is it does start to soften things out. But there's such a, a, a dialogue and relationship between the physical body and mental and emotional. I remember Rodney once saying that he felt the body was really hardened mind. Like the mind shows up as a body expression. And... You know, if you ever do some kind of body work or sometimes you just notice that postures hold this whole kind of belief and attitude in, in our in our minds and hearts. And so that's why I think it's so helpful to to really be embodied and be aware of the different levels of tension, the different levels of things which are arising. And, you know, my favorite way to integrate life in Dharma practice is just constantly monitoring the internal experience. I'm saying something and I feel that tension that often is very much echoed in some emotional tension, which is echoed in that sense of me showing up. Versus when I'm able to, to relax that, I'm able to relax the mind, relax this attitude of separation, that sense of, of isolation. There's a way that the body just, it just, it just settles into the ground. It just relaxes into the ground. So I think it's it's so helpful to be able to notice both when we contract and also when we release. Being and the body is a great feedback around that. Does that help, Bob? Or is there another aspect that I missed? No, that that's good. Thanks, Tim. Great. All right, I saw um, Risa. Do you want to go ahead? Rishi, you mean? Rishi, sorry. Go ahead, Rishi. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, thanks for explaining the concept. I, I've been struggling with understanding how to persist the sense of self. Uh, one uh, way for me to look into this is really if I'm working towards something that is beyond me, I don't have to really work this hard to constantly be vigilant to uh and 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 go and let go uh and lose the sense of self and then get it back or something uh i get I'll give an example so if i'm say volunteering or i'm working on problems of science that will are beyond my selfish interest then the sense of self will automatically start to kind of disappear to some degree and will persist is this a way to think about this or uh is this too uh too too different of a concept than try to really understand it in in a uh, moment by moment and you know in a short-term basis so if, if i understand your question it's just around can certain activities in the way you relate to them have movement toward understanding non-self like for example I can be focused on something very self-serving, for example, versus something that's based in trying to serve many more people. 
I'm already kind of shifting. Is that part of your question? Yeah, I think something like that. I guess, I mean, just how do I live a life that I, the sense of self automatically disappears? Mm. Okay, so how do you live a life that sense of self automatically dis- disappears? I think that's that's a great kind of um, intention and way of, of holding our, our lives. And you can start to see that, that that's, let's, let's go down to a very narrow perspective, like just, Let's say you and, and a loved one, so you someone who's your spouse or your partner or just a friend, your parent, child, mm-hmm. whoever it is. There's a way that we can relate to that person that reinforces that sense of me, that kind of makes it more solid. Or I can relate to it in a way that actually allows that sense of self to start to fall away. Luckily, that way actually allows you to be much more connected, much more intimate, much more available for how that person is. Versus kind of that clunkiness of this is me and I want to defend that. So in the interpersonal way, it's like it's often being less defended, being more open, being more vulnerable. Again, you know, depending on the relationship. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of in your life, even doing something like this is a kind of a classic one when we do for, for eating meditation before you eat. You can reflect on all the different hands that were involved in making that food come right in front of you. So you Mm -hmm. start to see, okay, this food is actually touched by so many different people. So many people have helped that. So things Mm -hmm. that broaden out your perspective. Mm -hmm. We talked about this in the memorial or the Remembrance Monday, the sense of of narrow attention from grief versus this universal grieving that we all experience Mm -hmm. this. Expressions of generosity, of volunteering, and really reflecting Mm -hmm. that, well, here I am, like the people volunteering tonight, we got Ken and Adam and Cheryl and um, is May here? He's, Deb's here. Deb and Beth. All these people, as they as they practice this volunteering and supporting, you know, holding like you're you're holding the whole room. You're holding everyone here online, everyone in person. So that all broadens the attention mm-hmm. and the sense of self. You start to connect with with everyone. Yeah, so that's, I think those are all beautiful ways of, of working with that. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, how about here in the room? Anyone like to ask or share anything? Yes. Do you mind grabbing that mic so they can hear you? That's right in front of you, actually. Yeah, hi, um, my name is Pallas. I hey, Pallas. Seattle about week and a half ago, so this is my first time here. Wonderful. Um, so my question is about how to reconcile non-self um, with self-care and self-esteem and kind of like the good things that kind of come with having that attachment to self. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we were to, you know, lose our sense of self and remove that attachment, how are we to still maintain that kind of self-confidence and also um still care for ourselves and our bodies. Yeah, thank you, Pallas. That's a great question. And it's also an, an important piece because sometimes we we hear this this teaching as a non-self and we think it's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I can kind of jump over my low self-esteem. I can look, get over my behavior, my ethics. My kind of non-self is empty. Everything's empty. What does it matter? But that's actually a misusing of the, the teachings. 
And because that, that sense of self, low self-esteem, for example, is going to tend to draw you back into that sense of you. So ideally, we first kind of become very comfortable with that sense of me. We learn how to embrace, embrace ourselves, have a sense of, of you know, healthy self-esteem, that sense of, okay, I'm, I'm here and I'm fully here. You know, I've, anything that I feel like I have to really accomplish, I can work with those. And that allows us to kind of settle ourselves. And then from there, we can start to explore that sense of me and, and not me, that sense of self and non-self. And that starts to then fall away. And when that falls away, that self-esteem, what happens is that it's not like it's, for most people, it's not like it's gone completely. There's a way that we kind of go back and forth between those realms. And often what brings us back is those very issues you talked about. Like if I'm overworking myself, if I'm burned out, if I'm really feeling terrible about myself, that's kind of the, what's going to glue me myself back together. And so then turning toward that, really understanding that, how can I take care of my own you know, well-being? How can I take care of myself, self-care? How can I learn to, to love myself more deeply? Those are all really important aspects and really essential for this whole path. So I don't see them as contradictory. I think they really are dependent upon each other. And you start to learn deeper ways. Once you start to have, it's often kind of a back and forth, right? You work on self-esteem, non-self, self-esteem back and forth. And at some point you start to realize that the self-esteem and non-self actually work well together because that sense of, of let's say, low self-esteem, that's often kind of the core, one of the core things that create that sense of separation, right? Because, you, you know, when we feel bad about ourselves, really, we're really established. I know who I am and what I am. It's an unpleasant, terrible sense of me, but I'm really there. Right? I didn't really know who I am. Once you start to have these, these tastes of non-self, you start to realize, well, maybe the issue is more my belief in that sense of self. And then, I, then it, you're able to work with the psychological in a much more fluid way. And actually, okay, here's this pain coming up. I can open to it because it's not taking it so personally. It's really this interesting paradox. You can still feel the personal pain, and yet it's not taken as personally. So it doesn't hurt as much. But you can see be felt in some ways more deeply. Thank you, Paris, and welcome to Seattle. <laughs> All right, anyone else online or in person? All right, Adam. He's going to grab that seat there. That's the hot seat. Hey, um, in our group, I was talking about something, and I'm, I'm now wondering if I'm totally conflating two things. So I'd love to ask you for some clarification. So I was talking about um, an example we sometimes used to talk about, um, dukkha, which was like stubbing my toe, right? And like the whole concept of second darts and adding layers to our suffering. But in this case, I was talking about how sometimes when I have those moments kind of having practiced, I kind of feel like a, a welling up, it seems like, of, of selfing, of that sense of like, you know, I stub my toe and it's like, you know, maybe before the darts or maybe concurrent with the darts, there's this sense of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And I, you know, I, th that shouldn't have even been there. And I'm like injecting myself into the situation in a way that I, 
you know, there's that welling up of that sense of, you know, solidity of self. Am I just conflating those two ideas completely? I know that they're somewhat interrelated, but does that, is, is there, is there something to that, that that's happening there when you, when, when I'm having that reaction that the sense of self is like really contracted and that's part of what's bringing those second arrows? So the, you're wondering if the second arrow and the, the reaction and the sense of self, are they together the same thing or different? Yeah, or, or how, how interrelated are those two concepts in that example? Am, am I kind of confusing things there? No, I don't think you're confusing it at all. I think that you're probably having a little hindrance attack doubting that scene, but really it's 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 a really clear statement if you you know if you had just said it it's like yeah that's right <laughs> because it's really a subjective that's a subjective experience like the true so the second dart does everyone know what that teaching is if you don't know what that is it's this kind of graphic way the Buddha described this optional sense of suffering that we you describe you get hit by an arrow. And it hurts. Okay, it doesn't matter. The Buddha is going to hurt. Everyone's going to hurt. But what happens if you've practiced is that's all you feel. You just feel the hurt. If you haven't practiced, if you haven't really got a lot of depth of your practice, what you do is you add a second arrow or a third arrow or a fourth arrow, and that's that reaction. Really, the heart of that second arrow is a sense of self. Right? There's a sense of me who's having that experience and, and as a reaction. Because when you're when you're saying what I shouldn't have stubbed my toe, why did I do that? Who you know are you blaming someone else? You really feel more established in that time. You know it's a painful sense of self, but it's it's really you or there. And that's looking at dependent origination. You can look at it very technically. That there's the the sense data of the toe hitting the block or wood. There's the unpleasant the vedna of unpleasantness, and there's the clinging and craving. Uh, you're moving away from it, and then that becomes seeds for the sense of you who's having all this reaction around it. Yeah, I mean, you basically described, that's exactly right. That's exactly what it, it happens, is that sense of self rises up. You really inject yourself in that. And that's what I'm trying to point to, is that seeing of that injection. It's like, wow, I'm really here. And by become, being aware of it, there's a part of you that's not so lost in it. There's you're calling forth a part of you that's able to observe that whole process. That brings this f- capacity for wisdom to start, start to grow. Like, oh, the sense of self is growing in, in relationship to this experience. You know, and then there's there's also the, the parts of compassion and you know learning how to sometimes navigate that. Like with Paris's question, how can we navigate or Palace's question, sorry, how can we navigate, you know, that that self hatred that often comes up around it? So it's, it's, yeah, you're right on. Thank you. You bet. Anyone else here in the room or online? Oh, Deb, come on up. Uh, 
Uh, this past Saturday was the Solstice Parade in Fremont. Those of you who don't live in Seattle or are new to Seattle, the Solstice Parade every year traditionally is led by groups of naked people on bicycles. This was a Dharma lesson because, I'm going to tell you, because um, as an older uh, human being now myself, very aware of my body changing as I age, and looking at this vast array of human shapes going by me on two wheels, and thinking, you know, there was a time as a younger person, and I'm not proud of this, but I was, you know, so judgmental of how people, other people looked. And I would say to myself, oh, I am never going to get to be that shape. You know, you got to get it together, people, and have some discipline here. Right? So this is very acculturated, you know, bias on my part. And now I find that blessedly less so. So all these people go by on their bikes, and I'm looking and just enjoying this cavalcade of human shapes, knowing that my body is also beginning to change and become more like that, too, rather than less like that. And there's this, there was this sense of joining in the stream of humanity rather than being apart from it. And it was really fun. I mean, the parade is fun, and it's intended to be fun, and a very pagan sort of free-for-all ritual, so there's always that element. But feeling less outside of it and more a part of it, even though I was not this year on a bike, but maybe next year I'll be on the bike. But, you know, just to say, look at all of us. This is the we. We. Here are we, humans. And it was really pretty cool. Great. So it was a Dharma lesson. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Deb. And that's just to kind of highlight that, which she said, to kind of um, point out a couple pieces around that sharing. That sense of comparing how our minds were and now how they are, I think that's really helpful. Because you can see, well, like in the past, I would have been really judgmental of the different body shapes and seeing the conditioning of, you know, how, how we are really, we really, you know, have a very narrow thing of what is acceptable to be human, which is really in some ways violent to so many people, including ourselves. But you can see that contraction and then you can see, wow, this, this something has fallen away that you didn't intend to say, okay, I'm going to be open in this experience. You just were, right? You're just a different thing arose in that. So that difference, that's so it encourages you. It encourages you, like where the practice is, is deepening, there's something letting go, there's something that's opening, and it feels good because there's that, that sense of interconnection versus the pain of being caught in, in that, that judgment, you know, that contraction. That's part of the thinning of self, right? If we, looked, if we talked to you, that old Deb, and who is in the judgment, and, you know, not calling you out, we all have those aspects. When we interviewed you, you say you really knew who you were, right? You could tell us all the things that you judge, and there's so much clarity around it. And if we had some way of kind of capturing visually the image or some kind of spectral, something way to show it, you'd be really contracted. 
And then we talk to you on Saturday during the parade. You see, you're much more open. You're much less defined. And yet, you're more connected. Isn't that weird? You're more defined, more judgmental, more separate. More, less defined, more open, less separate. That's, that's the pathway. And you just take that in deeper and deeper ways. Thank you, Deb. All right, anyone else, anything like to ask or share? Emery has her hand up. All right. Emery from Portland. Yeah, hi there. Um, So I had another question uh, about the thinning of self, and Deb just so beautifully described one of the, like, sweetnesses of it. But one thing that I've noticed over the last few years is that I often don't know the answer to things. Like a question will come up in my life at uh, work. I really sometimes feel it at work a lot or um, at in my home and my, you know, whatever. And whereas I used to feel like, okay, I can figure out the answer to this, or I know the answer to this, or I have opinions or judgments or ideas. Now, sometimes I feel so ineffective because I'm like, I really have no idea. There's so much possibility Mm. and there's so much space and so many things I don't know about this situation. I can't possibly, you know, like come to a judgment or, figure it out or even the feeling like things aren't always figure outable. And yet in my job, part of my job is to find ways to solve certain problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that or really almost like advice because I like the sense of not knowing it, it is very open and very freeing and very, I don't feel identified when I feel that way. But at the same time, I, I do have to make decisions and fulfill responsibilities and do stuff. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question, a great observation. So that sense of kind of being definitive, being the expert, is becoming not as you don't want it. You're not just naturally not stepping into that in the same way. And you're also seeing that any any one answer, there's actually could be many answers, which could equally be helpful or right. And you can see the freedom in that, but also there's the awkwardness of you know, you are the the person who's supposed to know something. <laughs> you have to come up with some answer around that. Yeah, it's just, I, th- I think a lot of it is is kind of this transitional, kind of a, a place of limbo almost. That where there's a sense of self that was before so solid and established, and you know you're functional because the whole world's kind of set up in that sense of self, and the sense of self is getting looser and less defined. And but you're not maybe all the way to that really full opening to it, and so you kind of you know, it doesn't make sense to do the old pattern, but the new pattern hasn't really opened to its depth, 
and you're kind of in this, I don't quite know how to do things. I mean, what I, I like to do in those situations is that, and I can also, you know, relate to that, that there's, there's so many different ways to approach things. I just kind of go get still in myself, just, you know, kind of turn in and just have this patience to allow something to arise. And it arises from a different place than our normal ego or normal mind or even even being, you know, a well-trained professional, there is a way that kind of loads around it. So you have, there's a kind of a trust that, okay, let something else come up. The nice thing is that all your expertise, all your training can say, okay, yeah, that's actually, that does fit. That is a good choice here. And that allows you to tap in more into, I know you work with, you know, with people in an interpersonal way as part of your, your role, is you can actually tap into what's right for that person. Like when I answer a question, I don't have like a list of questions that, you know, answers I pull out. I see what seems to arise in relationship to that question right here and right now. And I might answer the same question very differently based on who asks it. And where does that come from? It's not coming from me. It's coming from, you know, some sense of that interconnection, that sense of, of, of unity there. So, you know, trust that you know, sometimes there is so many different choices and maybe asking follow-up questions to get, sometimes like there's, you don't have the full picture. You realize, you know, maybe there's five things that could be right here. Ask some follow-up questions, get to know more information. And then often then something arises. Or maybe it's about co-creating an answer. And, but basically just yeah, practice, you know, especially in, in low stakes places, see if you can just tune into yourself and see what arises. And often there is a sense of, oh, alignment that fits. And you notice how it's received, right? So if it's received well, you often see the other person, they, something shifts in them, they, their body relaxes, they open. But if they get tenser or they get shut down, you realize, okay, maybe I was off on that. But because you're in a less defined place, you're able to pivot without becoming, okay, I'm going to just keep going this route no matter what. It's like, oh, let me, let me, let's do a different option, a different answer. Does that help at all, Emory? Yes, very much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, so we are at the end of our time here, and enjoy this week. I think next week Twerry's back. We have to double check with her. If not, then I'll be here, and we'll continue with this exploration. And then next next month we'll be opening to whatever is next on the three, three the three oh the three poisons. Oh boy, does that sound exciting? <laughs> <laughs> The three defilements, the three clashes. How can we work with non-judgment as we open to the three poisons? <laughs> okay, wonderful. So thank you all. It's nice to see all the new people. Welcome. You're always welcome to come up and say hi if you like at the end. And those in line, have a wonderful evening. And we'll see you next time.